currently in um, Amsterdam. We're traveling, but yeah. we wanted to talk and we wanted to... Yes, yeah, so we were very excited for this conversation specifically. Yes, definitely. So I guess before we start formally recording, if you could maybe talk to us a little bit more in person about your idea and how, what direction you kind of want to go with it. Let's open the up with the, sl- way. with the sleep talk thing, like, hey, it's sleep talk. <laughs> yeah, but I want to hear... Yeah, okay, so, so basically I'm not a huge watcher of popular science documentaries, really. Right. But when I do catch them, especially about physics and you know i happen to be a physicist so kind of watch those sometimes and it seems to me that like this whole area of sort of solid state physics is basically absent from popular science or at least that's my impression i don't know if it's a good Mm -hmm. impression and it's (laughs) it kind of puzzles me as to why that is because you know along with a lot of other things it's very important to how a lot of people experience the world nowadays and it's it's more about a broader question of how do people who communicate science choose what they are communicating mm-hmm. so like yeah, who, is, really who, is choosing, who is choosing the subjects of these things broadly right 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 yeah mm-hmm. well earlier you said it changes the way we see the world did you mean that the science itself or the stories that are made popular I actually, I think both, okay? So, first of all, solid-state physics, and it's not just this, but it's other things, but it's one of the parts. Things like development of modern electronic devices, things like the understanding of material properties on a molecular and and atomic level, those kind of things have influenced modern technology more than I think most people realise, right? I mean, even the the founding of Silicon Valley goes back to Fairchild Semiconductor and similar organisations which grew out of solid-state physics research, basically, at Bell Labs. Right. Mm -hmm. So, can you explain, we'll assume that whoever is listening to this knows nothing, and we don't know very much either, so Mm -hmm. can you explain briefly what is solid state physics and maybe how is it applicable and how did it become important in in our daily lives because that seemed like the direction you were taking it when right. you emailed us okay. that it is in fact very important to us but we don't uh, so, <laughs> necessarily apply it okay so first of all it's a very broad field and that, that term is used on a lot of things i guess a broad definition might be the understanding of how matter works in solid form or or in condensed material form. So some people Uh would argue that it includes things like polymer physics and biophysics, but but really the thing I personally have some experience of is electronic devices and semiconductor physics. But broadly speaking, it's the physics of how matter works when you have a large system put together. And it goes back quite a long way, or at least just before the 20th century. And it was really revolutionized by the early discoveries of quantum mechanics, because then suddenly a lot of things about material properties which didn't seem connected before that time become explainable within this framework of quantum mechanics. And so at that point, sort of the early 20th century, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, that was when a lot of the foundations of this field were made, which in terms of the application side of it really came to a Probably the, the most pivotal moment was the invention of the uh, the transistor in the late 1940s. Mm-hmm. So how did the, in, or not invention of quantum mechanics, but how did the discovery, I guess, of quantum mechanics enable the development of transistor physics and solid state right. physics? Because one seems very theoretical while the other one's like very much applied. So how yeah. do you bridge that uh, transition? Right, okay, so... The class of materials known as semiconductors had been known about for at least several decades before the development of the transistor. And it was known that they had some sort of odd properties in terms of how electricity seemed to work when it interacted with them. But it isn't until you have a description of how electrons behave and how they move and how the quantum states of electrons work in, say, a lump of germanium or a lump of silicon 
that you can begin to imagine applying manipulations to it and getting something useful. So prior to that understanding, they were probably largely just seen as a curiosity. So the way a semiconductor works is that it's basically a quantum effect, but it, it's combined with some thermodynamics as well. And that is that at room temperature, due to the Pauli exclusion principle, which, which people may be familiar with, there are regions of energy which are not allowed to be occupied by electron states, and that's called a band gap. And at high enough temperatures, some electrons are promoted from the full bands below the band gap up over the band gap to the conduction bands, as they're called. And those electrons can participate in conduction. Does this have to do with like the more common terms ground state and excited state? Or is <laughs> yeah, this... it is. It is yeah, very different. similar. So it, the Pauli exclusion principle basically says no two electrons can be in the same quantum state. Okay? But yeah. When you have a material, so a block of silicon or another semiconductor, that applies to each electron individually in some sense. And so in fact, there are billions and perhaps trillions of electron states in that block of material. But of course, most of them in terms of their energy and uh, their momentum are very close to each other, even though they're not the same quantum state. And so we group those together mm -hmm. in what we call bands. And in a solid material, even though they're technically discrete things separate to each other, they kind of look continuous because they're so close together. And so that's what we call bands. Right. They're just sets of quantum states, of which the lowest will be the ground state, right? Right. The thing about mm -hmm. semiconductor physics is that all of the things you actually use on a day-to-day -day basis to work things out, calculate things, and, and explain mm -hmm. things are actually not quantum mechanical. We operate in what we call right. a, a semi-classical picture. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it turns out, and this is really convenient, that once you have kind of encapsulated which bits of quantum mechanics you need, you can kind of mm -hmm. just put them mm -hmm. in a box and then make up this model that isn't really quite quantum and just forget about quantum mechanics, right? Right, so, so right. You can talk about how semiconductors work. Well, when you say work. this is interesting, when yeah. you say quantum, what do you mean? How do you distinguish between quantum mechanics and classical mechanics? Uh, well, so how I would distinguish between it is to say that if you're working in the quantum realm, you always have to consider everything as being a, well, let's call it a wave function, okay? Or that term maybe. Right, yeah. But Instead of a is, singular is like particle. Right, or exactly. wave Singular state and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And so that is true technically in semiconductor physics, but actually it's rarely needed. Mm -hmm. You can construct a picture where the electrons actually, you construct these things which are called quasi electrons, right? And they're mm -hmm. like electrons, they have the same of charge, <laughs> uh, but they have, a, they have a smaller mass. And it turns out that when you put a lot of electrons together in these systems, electrons kind of still act like bouncing balls, but with some slightly altered properties, which are interesting properties. But it turns out you can then kind of sweep quantum mechanics under the rug and just operate on these artificial things, which aren't really electrons, but they sort of are. Then zooming out a little bit, what are the implications? Yeah, definitely. Right. So the interesting thing, the really, there are two really interesting things about how this works in terms of electronics, let's say that's one of the practical applications. Firstly, the fact that in a semiconductor, these bands happen to be pretty close to each other in energy, right? So there are, there are materials where the bands are very far apart, we call those insulators. There are materials where the bands actually overlap and they're called metals or conductors. And the materials where they're just slightly apart at room temperature, right? So room temperature mm -hmm. defines how much energy each electron kind of gets from the thermal surroundings, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or the temperature it's in, right? But when I say room temperature, it's kind of a wide range for most semiconductors from about 100 Kelvin to about three or 400 Kelvin, right? Something like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. But because in a semiconductor, these bands are very close together, it means that you only need to introduce a very small amount of energy from the outside to kick electrons from the lower bands where they are naturally existing but can't move around. 
across mm-hmm. the Forbidden Gap to the higher bands where they can move around freely. Oh, okay. <laughs> the Forbidden Gap. Right, yeah. yeah. So, so the, and that energy can be introduced either thermally or by light energy. So the idea is that if you can control where you introduce that energy, you can control the movement and flow of electrons very precisely, very finely. Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing is that you can adjust the, basically this, well, it's not technically this, but this is, does as a picture. You can adjust the size of that gap by introducing chemical impurities at points in the semiconductor. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you can make it more likely for there to be more electrons in parts and fewer electrons in other parts. And we have this picture we call holes. So if you move an electron from the, the valence band, which is the lower band, where they can't move, to the conduction band, what you leave behind okay. is a gap in the valence band, right? So you've taken an electron mm-hmm. out of it, which is now in the higher band, and in the lower band is a gap. Now it turns out that those gaps can be regarded as particles themselves. So The gaps? Yes. Really? So the, the, the space you leave behind can move around freely in the part where electrons couldn't move around so freely, and those are called holes. And that's kind of the biggest, most difficult concept to get your head around when you start out in this field. But it turns out that... Uh, so those holes... So, so imagine now we have an electron, we've moved up to the higher band, and it can move around freely and sort of conduct... And then we want to uh, let it fall back down to the lower band. Well, mm-hmm. it can mm-hmm. only fall back down to the lower band if there's a hole for it to fall into. Right. So, so you can promote the electrons and have them move around and stuff. And if you can get the holes to move somewhere else, you can then keep the electrons in the upper band. Okay, okay. So, so all this might seem quite abstract, but it turns out that, you know, being able to do that allows you to sort of play with the flow of electrons in ways that are very difficult in, in normal conducting materials. Mm-hmm. And the most... It sounds like very careful manipulation. Yeah, it turns out that you don't have to be that careful, though, actually. That's the interesting thing, right? So because you're talking about billions of electrons and the energies are roughly room temperature and the energy scale we're talking about is a few electron volts, which means that uh, the amount of energy an electron gets where you put a few volts of potential across it. So actually, these scales are just very convenient for everyday usage. So in a sense, it's kind of like all based on quantum mechanics, but the scales you work with are... are real-world, everyday scales. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I have, I have cool. a bit of a question about, you said that it just so happens that these scales are pretty fantastic for real-world applications, even though we're working with quantum theory here. Is that just like a convenient coincidence, or have we designed it in such a way that it's easier to manipulate well it's a convenient coincidence because there happen to be some elements and materials that work like this right so so i mean if you are working at a temperature of 2000 kelvin then there would be a lot of insulators that would be semiconductors <laughs> who doesn't <right? laughs> but but at yeah. the temperatures we exist at turns out really there are probably three really good ones there is uh, silicon germanium and an alloy of gallium and arsenic called gallium arsenide yeah there's other ones but those are the common ones so Dan talked earlier about, or you talked earlier about different mass media portrayals of solid state physics. And as somebody who is also interested in the sciences and plans to pursue a career in medicine, I'm really interested in different ways that the popular media also conveys different portrayals of your discoveries. fields. Yeah. Right. So like if it's Silicon, we've heard of Silicon Valley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like that's a TV show, I think. I haven't watched it extensively. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's <laughs> and pretty I think good. It has to do... It has to do more with computing. Yeah, I really like the after what's his face. 
Thomas Middleditch. He's in it. He's Canadian. But do you think that these sorts of portrayals help legitimize or promote popular interest in your field? Well, um, okay, so in the specific, I'm going to say no. But the reason for that is kind of complicated because, as you say, like Silicon Valley nowadays is largely about software. Yes. But that wasn't always the case, right? So before you had modern software... And, and I mean, there's been a concept of programmable things for hundreds of years, right? So it's been a theoretical area. But before you had modern computers, you, you couldn't have had a huge industries based on software writing, right? So really, early Silicon Valley was exactly that. It was hardware based. It was building silicon devices. And so nowadays, there isn't much solid state physics that goes on in Silicon Valley. There's a bit. Uh, but in the early days of Silicon Valley, in the, the 50s and the 60s, that was where a lot of practical developments of, of solid-state devices happened. Mm-hmm. And so, that I mean, that's that's the origin of the name Silicon Valley, right? So the modern computer comes from the ability uh, of not just making transistors. So on one level, transistors can be quite boring. They act as kind of a switch. So they're like a switch mm-hmm. that you can mm-hmm. switch on with another voltage, right? So it's like a switch that you don't have to flip. You can flip it using the output of a different switch, if that makes sense. It's like a tap. It's like a tap you can turn on and off mm-hmm. with, with voltage. Once you can build those, you can build simple computing devices. The real innovation with, with modern microprocessors and, and stuff comes with integrated circuits, which is where you discover that, in fact, there's no reason you can't basically print these things on a plane on 2D. And so you can build many, many transistors on the same physical piece of silicon and wire them up just by doing kind of etching and lithography. And that's when you get to the stage of being able to to build integrated circuitry. And that's what modern computer chips are based on. Right. So, I mean, in terms of solid state physics, no, I mean, Silicon Valley is not the place to learn it now. But my thought on this is mainly that nearly everybody has a smartphone or a computer or or I mean, even an LED torch, right, or a a camera, a digital camera, for example. All of these things are fundamentally dependent on semiconductor physics to work. And yet, Forget the fact that not many people know how to code, right? That's one layer of black boxing. But even below that, there's a whole other layer of black boxing where you have this kind of black plastic chip if you look inside your phone that to many people just seems like magic, right? And it's not magic. It's just this area of science, which for some reason doesn't have this much impact in the public mind, to my view, right? Because I can talk to a lot of people and say, oh, you're a scientist, that's great. And they say, what do you do? Well, I mean, technically I work in particle physics now, but I work in semiconductor detectors for particle physics. So really, I kind of see myself as a solid state physicist. And you say that to them and then they say, well, okay, you know, what's that? I don't know what that is, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when you say you're a particle physicist, (laughs) they kind of sort of understand what it is that you're trying to do. Right. Right, right. Well, do you know, you know what you just said? You said that that solid state physics hasn't really had a very strong application before. I'm not sure what date you said, but the big, before the development of modern technology, there wasn't much of an application for it. And so do you think that that may be part of the reason that it isn't as well known or as popular as some of the theories which have seemed to have a universal impact? I think it's possible. On the other hand, though, when you th- Think about the history of modern science, right? So let's mm-hmm. say something like e- uh, evolution, right? Well, mm-hmm. evolutionary mm-hmm. theory was uh, the 19th century, right? And so that's actually quite recent, right? Uh, quantum mechanics was only really fully fleshed out in the 1920s. General mm-hmm. relativity was 1915. So we're only talking about two decades after that, really. Um, wow, yeah, that's much closer than I thought. And I mean, yeah. in fact, plate tectonics isn't even that old, right? So, so, so I, 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 I d- it's a good point. I think it might be... It might be true because this is kind of a, in some sense, it's quite a modern area, but really all of the stuff we see in modern popular science is modern areas, right? So things like neuroscience, for example, well, modern neuroscience just didn't exist until, uh, okay, I, again, yeah. I'm no historian, but 
it seems to me like 30 or 40 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Right, yeah, well, neuroscience is a different category because it's about people to an extent, much more so than transistor physics is. So people are interested in neuroscience because they want to understand how their minds operate and not necessarily because they're scientifically inclined. They just want to understand themselves better. So it's a different angle, but yeah. that's just my opinion. But as far as why something like transistors physics isn't well known... Maybe it's I'd something assume... to do with the black box component as well. Like nowadays, even though yeah, everybody you... uses Wi-Fi and they're looking for Wi-Fi, like... They, yeah, you just sort of accept, of you accept, I think it's like kind of the same reason that a lot of people don't code, right? Because yeah. you accept that the way that your machines are operating is mm -hmm. sort of beyond your grasp, and it would right. be irrelevant to you to understand it, mm -hmm. so you tune it out. Yeah. But that's... Oh, I, I actually, Go I ahead. think that's kind of, for me, I kind of find that uh, sad in a way, because... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, okay, so I do code, right? I, I code as part of my job and stuff like that. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but... It's on some level, yes, modern integrated technology like that is more difficult to peel back all these layers of black boxing than, say, a 1970s car was. But on another level, the process is quite similar, right? So once you, if you sit down at a computer and say, well, I'm just going to read some stuff about how to make this thing work, and you can start peeling back layers of that, okay? And I mean, you'd have to peel back yeah. many layers till you get to transistors, but at the same time, there are other electronic devices, you know, so it's, you have some electronic device, you look at it and you think, well, you could just look at it and think, well, how, how you know, it's that curiosity, right? It's, it's curiosity that drives yeah. science forward. And so things that people kind of take for granted that they could be curious about. And if you can encourage people to be curious about things, they will start like looking into it. So the two big questions I think people have is, what is the ultimate nature of reality, one? And the second one is, what is my perception and how is my like neurology and psychology affected that way? So I think transistor physics falls into this other point of curiosity where you're asking about everyday objects, which <laughs> maybe you have to be a little bit more sophisticated to yeah. be effectively curious about. But I think, I think in addition to like understanding how reality functions, another component to that curiosity is learning the different ways that you can engage and apply yeah, yeah. different well, parts of Well, it's not like a computer is any more real than, or less real than the universe on a large scale, but right? But think about, like, all the amazing coincidences in the world, like uh -huh. the fact that there's silicon in such massive amounts in the Earth's crust that can also be used as a semiconductor, or the yeah. fact that, like, cocaine oh. or other <laughs> <laughs> drugs are just so perfectly attuned to these certain endogenous receptors in your brain. Yeah. He wasn't into the cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was what was that. Wait, was that the number we're trying to call? Hello? Hello? Hi. Yeah, sorry. We... Where did we drop off? Somewhere around cocaine? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I'll just repeat the point. I'll sure, sure. Right, so... I was just talking to Steph now. about like the the various amazing coincidences that like our reality has presented to us, such as the fact that silicon is in such massive amount in the Earth's crust, <laughs> and it can also be used as a semiconductor. That's a great coincidence. Mm -hmm. And also, if we're talking neuroscience, there are cocaine and like a variety of other drugs mm -hmm. that are so perfectly attuned to these endogenous receptors in your brain that it's almost amazing they to think about altered states. Yeah. So like people have gone out and had some sort of curiosity that led them to explore these different functions of the world around them. Totally. Mm -hmm. I think I, that's I think a very those, powerful those incentive. Those coincidences seem to occur like on every level from the base. So there's a really great, uh, I don't know what the quotation is, but 
Basically, one of the Nobel Prizes in solid state physics was awarded to someone called Philip Anderson. He developed a lot of, not specifically transistor or semiconductors, but a lot of other fundamental parts of solid state physics, which have fed into other branches of physics as well. And he kind of had this thing where he's saying that more is different. Uh, which means that, you know, on the one hand, we hear that a lot of scientists reductionist. So basic physics mm-hmm. and uh, and other areas where you're trying to take stuff apart and, and find out the rules of how stuff works. But what he says is that being able to do that is important and necessary, but it doesn't imply that you can start from those basic building blocks and work out everything that happens. Right. right? So there are complicated systems like from semiconductors to chemicals to biological molecules, to organisms, to brains, right? Which all require new insights. You can't start from some basic rule of the world and, and derive how a brain works. Or at least we don't think so, right? Right, so one of the I... first parts of his emails that was interesting to us was the fact that you said the history of solid-state physics and like the physicists associated with it. I think you use the term it's very racist and then the history is colored so negatively that you think that this possibly also has a perception mm-hmm. on solid-state physics well, today. Yeah. Uh, okay, that's that's kind of me no, speculating. This is interesting. It's, I'm I'm speculating, there, sure. right? But one thing is that one of the very very important figures in the history of solid state physics was a guy called Shockley, and he didn't invent the transistor, although he did win the Nobel Prize for inventing the transistor. Mm-hmm. He invented the second type of transistor, which was called a junction transistor, which was a very important invention. So he was working at Bell Labs in the early days of solid state physics, and no doubt about it, he was a great scientist. Oh, at least discovered a lot of great things and deservedly won the Nobel Prize, in my opinion, right, for his work. But Mm -hmm. uh, the most polite, the most kind of charitable way I can put it, and I don't want to be charitable, really, is that, Mm -hmm. first of all, he seems to have been just like a really nasty piece of work as a personal, you know, there are very Mm -hmm. few positive accounts of personal interactions with him in work or social life, right? And secondly, like, he had views that whilst they weren't really that uncommon amongst people at the time, we just would consider, like, really horrendous now, you know? And he spent the last maybe 20 years of his career basically kind of espousing eugenics, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is... I mean, you don't want to defend those views, and this guy is obviously not a nice person, right? It, but that's not to excuse other people, because like eugenics and attitudes like it, I think, if you look at history, were very common, you know, even as late as the mid-20th century. But really, I think one of the problems like that's a big thing in science is... Well, and it's not just science, right? It's it's kind of any creative endeavour, is, is to what degree can you separate someone from the contributions they make? And if you're trying to tell these stories, you kind of want people to tell it around. <laughs> and solid state physics, just mm-hmm. one of the founding people of solid state physics, just happens to be someone you really don't kind of want to tell a story about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you think his you... actions have like seriously affected like the experience of participating in solid state physics today, or is it just an yeah. issue of narrative? Mm-hmm. Like largely, I think it's an issue of narrative actually. But on the other hand, I mean, so as a physicist, I don't think it's remotely relevant, right? What that he was, a, I, yeah. I don't think if you read, even if you read like early solid state physics texts, they aren't kind of like racist or anything, right? Because he's just an orthogonal yeah. subject. <laughs> Not with electrons, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. This electron yeah. shouldn't um, be with that state. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're not drawn in a particular color or whatever, right? But actually, on the other hand. Shockley started a company after he left Bell Labs called the Shockley Semiconductor Company. And he started off with 12 people. And not due to his racism, but due to the fact that he was just really difficult to work with, basically. (laughs) After about a year, a lot of those physicists that he started up with left to form another company called Fairchild Semiconductor, which is the grandfather, grandmother, slash first real company that spawned all of the rest of Silicon Valley. 
And so amongst uh, those hey. people were both of the founders of Intel. I believe both of the two very important people in, in uh, ON Semiconductor and things like that. So basically he is, in some sense, a founding figure in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, somewhat indirectly, but actually kind of we trace it back. They all started at Shockley Semiconductor Company. And Okay. <laughs> and I actually, well, I'm, okay, I don't work in Silicon Valley, I never have, but not related to the science of it all, but in terms of tackling, like, history, it doesn't do anyone any good to rewrite history, right? So, no. if you actually are espousing Silicon Valley, you have to realise that a lot of its founding people were kind of, like, you know, not very nice people. And, yeah, and I think a lot of that history does carry ethical. through, actually, you know, I don't, I don't have great experience of this, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But it seems to me like, you know, you have to confront this stuff and get over it, basically, in some fashion. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. Do you think that there's some degree of repression of certain people or groups within Silicon Valley or within sciences because of their history or because of their actions? Or do you think that it sort of arose that way organically, that some parts of science or technology would be well known while others aren't oh you mean in terms of the na- in terms of like how well known they are i, I yeah i yeah. really don't know i, <laughs> I, I think um, i mean <laughs> i think it's a really the reason i kind of mentioned that in when i was emailing you is because i just think that's a really interesting question it's not because i actually right really know. have an answer for it i yeah. think it's more of a question for a historian right like the, the right me. yeah but yeah. it just right. i just find it interesting and i'm sure there are many other like huge fields out there that i know nothing about because there's no popular science written about them right but it's just that I happen to be in this huge field, which <laughs> most people know nothing about because there's not much popular science about it, right? Well, that's a I question to ask. Like, like, why personally did you choose to get into solid-state physics if the odds were stacked against you? I, I don't think, no, I don't think that's the best. Well, so I just, I happened to do my undergraduate and master's at Cambridge, and there's a lot of famous solid-state physicists there, and it was the part of the undergrad physics mm-hmm. course that I enjoyed the most, et cetera, et cetera, right? So okay, I, I okay. think, you know, I just fell into it because it was what I enjoyed it and was what I was reasonably good at. But that's what I think a lot of people's experiences who end up in some specialized part of science, right, is that they set off just wanting to do physics or chemistry or whatever, and then they end up in, you know, everyone ends up in something specific if you pursue a career in it. So, you know, that just happened to be what I was interested in. Well, I mean, I'm not a historian either, but from my perspective, when you sent us this email, my first intuitive jump was to think that people like different things because of their own psychology and their own disposition, and probably it has more to do with the way that we think than the stories that were told. For example, the thing that you were saying about knowledge requiring different insights in order to reach its full scope. Maybe some knowledge, for example, that's more based on like universally applicable laws is fewer jumps and so therefore easier to think about than something like transistor physics, which requires several jumps from the basic laws which we know. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Or at least several models. You think so? But then I also don't want to ignore the point that you said about the lack of narratives about the scientists who created these um, events. And maybe, what do you think, if you, if you could somehow create an ideal media circumstance or like uh, company circumstance, um, do you think that it would actually be possible to get people to develop this curiosity? Uh, okay, I don't know. I think TV I... show about <laughs> yeah. solid stage yeah. Well, I actually... Okay, I, yeah, can you write it? I actually think... Go ahead. Uh, well... First of all, the, the world is not short of solid-state physicists, right? It's not a crisis. I, I mean, mm. like, there are plenty of people doing it. <laughs> good, good. Oh, my God. Good. <laughs> uh, well, the general public is the problem, right? But, right, well, I yeah. just... The reason I think it's a problem is, is largely because it's so important to so much of modern technology and because people know so little about it, right? 
that that's why i think mm-hmm. it's a problem it's not because i think it's more interesting than anything else intrinsically right i mean right. i do personally mm-hmm. but that's just me i don't think it's yeah, you know, it's yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah do you think maybe what we can accomplish with solid state physics is viewed as less valuable than what we can accomplish with other forms of physics or sciences uh maybe that's a very vague question, I, I but I, <laughs> I'm thinking no, I like think... technological development. <laughs> How <laughs> significant is your field? And can we yeah. trade it off for something yeah. else? Well, I think technology, yeah. technologically, no, no, it's pretty unarguable. It's quite significant, right? I mean, even on the level of particle detectors, which is what I personally work on, uh-huh. that actually is foundational to so many other areas of science even now, right? Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. It's very rare that we measure things with our eyes anymore, right? <laughs> we, we tend right. to measure stuff with... Uh, some sort of sensor or measuring equipment. Sensors. Right? And, mm-hmm. and all of that is... Well, not <laughs> all of it, but much of how a lot of these things work, if you're talking about any kind of electromagnetic sensor or things like that, is, is all solid-state physics, right? So I think it's it's important on a practical level. But really what I would say is, you know, if I could encourage some brilliant science communicator <laughs> that, that there's something they should look at for their next documentary, think about solid-state physics. Because everybody has a phone, <laughs> Or, well, okay, not everybody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many, mm-hmm. you know, most people have experienced... First world people. In 50 years, everybody will probably have a yeah, phone, Yeah, okay, you know? let's, let's put it that so... way. Um, <laughs> then, and, and we don't want all of this stuff to be complete black boxes to everybody. Uh, yeah, well, I for sure. And I think that, but why not? Well, okay. <laughs> well, I don't really <laughs> I, know. There's too many questions, maybe. But... I, I don't know why not. I mean, well, for the same reason that I don't want people to not know about the theory of evolution, right? Yeah. For the same reason that I don't want people to not know that the Earth goes around the sun, right? Right, right. <laughs> I think also uh, technology is a very vulnerable area and you're very prone to manipulation mm-hmm. if you don't understand it well. Or just mi- like blind misuse or development that, or just limitation. Well, yeah. The degree of dependence that we have on it these days yeah. without understanding devices y- is... Yeah, it makes me very uncomfortable. Yes, yeah. particularly um, tenuous. Yeah, but about the ideal scientific narrator. Uh, you were saying well, something okay. about that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm just saying that um, a lot of the science documentaries I've watched that I've found compelling have been about history and, and about people, really, and, and kind of describing the, the technical achievements as not as an after effect, but as kind of like alongside the story of the people. Yeah. And I right. think you could do something like that with solid state physics, but the difference would be you would have to be somewhat sensitive about it and i think not whitewash the fact that a lot of these people are really nasty people whilst simultaneously not destroying the <laughs> not destroying the value of the whole field because some of the people in it were like not very nice people can you tell us a little bit about shockley just or like, we, i mean uh, yeah, we talked uh, about uh, him but um, it's good yeah. to have it for the so, so, okay, editing okay again <laughs> my knowledge of him is that i know his theories pretty well and i've read the biography right so don't take this too seriously but okay like he was a brilliant scientist kind of pretty very poor personal skills and like there's speculation that if he'd grown up today, you know, you might have diagnosed him as, as some kind of with some kind of autism related condition. Right? <laughs> sociopath. Um, yeah. I, I don't. Well, I don't think he's a sociopath, actually, from what I've read. I think he's more just like kind of very poor personal skills and didn't really know how to get on with people. Yeah. And, and, and also very kind of arrogant in his own beliefs, which, I mean, some degree of arrogance in some people is kind of warranted. He was undoubtedly brilliant. And then I think the eugenics thing, on the one hand, you shouldn't blow it too far out of proportion and say, oh, well, you know, he supported that he was a Nazi or something, because he wasn't really on that level. But on the other hand, he was outspokenly eugenicist, and he worried about, you know, the genetic... He worried about the human population degenerating, right, because of the wrong people breeding together. And this kind of thing, which we just find totally, mm-hmm. um, you know, just abhorrent nowadays, right? And yeah, yeah. And I mean, we should have always done, but but, but mm-hmm. you know, on the other hand, like 
that view doesn't seem to have been uncommon amongst, you know, the might call intelligentsia even 60 years ago, okay? So I think, to some degree, the main problem is that he just expressed it loudly, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, no, that's not to excuse it at all, of course, right? But it's to say that, like, I think he was a very unfortunate figure because he had a very bad way of expressing himself, but also could express himself very loudly because he was a Nobel Prize laureate. Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a very difficult figure, right? But in some ways, an interesting figure, but... You know, in terms of his contributions to science, I do think he made a big contribution. I don't think that it's really the responsibility of the scientist or whoever to execute anything other than that we're obligated to. I mean, he was working on transistor physics and he was successful there, so he wasn't obligated to be personable. As far as why there aren't narratives about it, I think it's probably just a lack of people in the creative fields who are either unable or unwilling to formulate a compelling, creative and genuine story about this character because you know most of the time actually complex characters are a lot more interesting to learn and read about but more difficult to sell and maybe not so easy to market to mass audiences so I think it's just a lack of first of all lack of knowledge at all of the existence of such a person from creative people who don't study science and the second one is an extension of, of that and that people are looking for good stories but sometimes negative stories are better in a sense because they give a more realistic perspective of what that development was. Here's, right? here's another example of another person from the early 1900s, different mm -hmm. scientific fields, so chemistry, you know, Lewis diagrams? Uh, yeah. Like yeah. the Lewis dot diagrams yeah, and like yeah. resonance and all of that. Mm -hmm. So he was also a scientific figure who was like so equally repulsive to his colleagues that even though the work that he did was so wonderfully important that it merited the Nobel Prize, he was continuously denied it because uh, he had like openly snubbed one of the people on the Nobel yeah, Prize yeah. committee. You know, that, that brings up actually another <laughs> separate issue that, you know, we didn't mention at all. But it's really important, and that is that in modern science, like, we really shouldn't be putting so much stock in Nobel Prizes in physics and chemistry. No. And, right. and but, like, cooperation yeah. is important, yes? yes? You don't want to be, like, that vaguely autistic person who says, okay, yeah. science is above all most important, and it's fine if I isolate the rest of humanity. Well, it's not, it's not only that. It's also that, okay, so I, I have two opinions on this. Firstly, that, like, modern mm -hmm. big science is done in collaborations with thousands of people. And it, it really is right. kind of, it's just misleading people to say, oh, well, two or three people deserve the credit for this discovery, right? Because it could be oh, yeah. between 10 and 1,000 people, right? And secondly, right. the fact that the Nobel Committee does engage in this kind of like politics of like, oh, we don't like that person, therefore we won't give them a prize. Well, that's ridiculous, right? So, right. so I just, I, I also kind of dislike how important <laughs> the Nobel Prize is seen as, you know? And even going back to Shockley, like, he wouldn't have had this much of a platform to kind of spout his, like, ridiculous ideas about race if he w wasn't a Nobel Prize winner, and that's 50 or 60 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's just, again, that he didn't feel obligated, because when you're so invested in one area, you have a tendency to ignore everything outside of it, even if it is important, right? Yeah. Like, if you're very invested in science, you may think that your input into the humanities or, social or society and culture is completely irrelevant, so it really doesn't matter what you say, mm -hmm. so you kind of slack off mentally in that one field but you're yeah. very rigorous in your actual work that you do but everything outside of it you you're yeah. not very careful so and, and i think that happens to everybody regardless of what they're working That's on true. is they don't yeah. focus on things outside mm -hmm. of their fields
maybe the, the development of technology has inspired more collaboration between people and like you said made a requirement for more collaboration so I guess what I'm trying to say is maybe the environment is changing in such a way that scientists can no longer be sort of independent isolated figures. I, I think that's true in many fields maybe not all but many I mean right yeah right, so many. Th there are other examples right like so for example I also don't believe I've seen a kind of good <laughs> or at least compelling science documentary about biochemistry, right? Okay, that's something I I, neither have about. I. <laughs> right, so many, but that's important, right? So, yeah. <laughs> that's also important, so, so why... Actually, optics, right? <laughs> Come to think okay. of it. But, I mean, I just think there's a lot of these things, like science communication, I think, has work to do, you know? And part of the problem is always going to be that the people who are kind of naturally good at and naturally want to work on communication to mass audiences are not the same set of people necessarily who, who are scientists. <laughs> right, which is which is a huge thing for, for us and for, for me personally. I mean, going back into personal opinions, but uh, that's I think that like that communication between the scientific and artistic fields has been an immense cultural problem over the past centuries and that now if we can actually bridge that gap like the whole premise of our podcast was essentially that we have a scientific perspective and a more subjective communicative perspective and we put them together and we try and bridge that gap mm -hmm. but people tend to be automatically repulsed because they create like a false division right they, they say holes. they say i am this so therefore i am not this other thing mm -hmm. but if you actually examine the modes of thinking like you realize that you, you're interested in very much the same things fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And second of all, that collaboration between those two fields is necessary to make both of them more effective. We like so, to imagine a world where people are as comfortable with science and working with these concepts as they are with sports or something like that, in which you are... Oh, no, actually, yeah, it's, it's Noam Chomsky, right? Someone I assume you know, yeah, uh, yeah, who yeah, has yeah, this yeah. same fascination, about right? But, um, uh -huh. About sports specifically, is, is that... It's one of those things where sports fans like can get incredibly like interested in like low level technical minutiae, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, like you know what is someone's batting average, etc., etc., and all this, and they know all these facts, right? Mm -hmm. And, and it, it's it's strange that well, it's not strange, okay, but it's it's interesting that that level of technical minutiae is kind of similar in some ways to what some scientists need to to have command of to work in their fields, right? but you find it right, in, right. in like sports. Right. So I think it's interesting to, to point that out. Like it's it's an interesting mm -hmm. way people... It's because, the, yeah, because people are so emotionally invested in sports, mm -hmm. but it's difficult for people to find the perspective to be equally invested in science. Right. Because it's much more s subtle. But at the same time, there are parallels, so I remain exceedingly hopeful in the fact. Yeah, yeah And also yeah, the yeah, fact yeah. that, like, they, what they call, like, geek and nerd things, they're becoming more mainstream to the point where people are actually learning code instead of, like, the people who dwell in the basement, as was the image mm -hmm. in the 1990s. Yeah. So yeah. I think we're gradually moving into at least mm -hmm. a field where knowledge towards these what we call black box concepts is becoming more yeah. readily accepted i think like yeah, yeah. on the on the level of code specifically that is a thing which a lot of our modern world is built on in some on some level it's like a power dynamic right like if, if there are a lot of high level jobs and fields and stuff now where you need to understand these things and so the fact that comparatively few people do is in some sense a problem so going back then, I asked you this before, you said you didn't have an answer, but what do you think it is that makes somebody interested in one kind of science versus another or in a subject at all, like sports or I actually uh, think it probably else. has to be a personal experience. 
for me, I just remember, like, at some point, I always kind of knew I wanted to be in science, so I went and did a physics degree, and, you know, at some point in that, you just come across some concept, and you think, that's really nice, you know, that's, that's really cool, and that was basically it for me, you know, like, for example, if you take Maxwell's equations, which is classical electrodynamics, uh, mm -hmm. and you, you postulate the existence of a wave, which consists of electricity and magnetism, right? And then you work through all the maths. You eventually get to a point where you can work out what the speed of that wave is from Maxwell's equation. Right. Right. And the speed of that yeah. wave happens to be the speed of light. Exactly. Right. But the wow, quantities yeah. it's composed of in Maxwell's equations are things called permittivity and permeability of, of materials. And, and so, you know, prior to someone doing that derivation and noticing that, those two things were just not thought to be related. But then it turns out that two separate experimentally measurable things connected by this beautiful theory, turn out to be the exact same number, and that is too big of a coincidence to not be something fundamental, right? But right. to my personal story, like, the first time I saw that, or was shown that in a lecture, I thought, oh, that is actually really cool, you know, how it actually fits together. And not that that's a specifically solid-state physics thing, but that's one of the things that, right. and you know, kept me going on in physics, right? But I think in any field it's the same. Like, so, I don't know, I think maybe there are some exceptions, like perhaps law or perhaps medicine, I don't know, where you know, kind of, you want to help people in some way. And so, like, I, yeah, I, a lot of medical me, yeah. people I've talked to, like, cite that as a reason they wanted to get into medicine. Right, but you were already a physicist when you found interest in solid-state physics. So I'm asking, like, imagine that you're five years old and you have no parental dictators or anybody telling you what to do. What, <laughs> I mean, what is the element of curiosity that would make you interested in one thing versus another? Like, what about the pattern of seeing things in the larger world? Yeah, yeah, like, what I'm saying is, is how, how do you think we can expose people to material in such a way that they'd have a sincere curiosity well, I, uh, I to learn think, about it? Well, I actually think, like, a lot, it comes up again and again from scientists of all the fields, like, from chemistry to biology, physics, psychology, and whatever, that, you know, they looked up, they have this story, like, oh, I looked up the stars and thought, that's, you know, that's really cool, I wonder how they work, right? <laughs> right, um, yeah. And so... It's interesting because that kind of experience is possibly like transcendental on some level, right? So oh, yeah. I think maybe you need like, you need to kind of imagine what those experiences for people might be and help provide them to people. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that goes back to the creative responsibility. <laughs> I, I may have like a somewhat vague answer to like the similarities across all the topics which we've covered today, sports, Please do. transistors, etc. I think it has to do with like the degree of personal connection you have with the topic itself. So like yeah, the concept but... of sport, there is a reverence for those people who do watch the sports mm -hmm. and that amount of striving exactly. on a physical dimension. Exactly. They reverence. might be better with that connection on like physical ex exertions rather mm -hmm. than someone who takes greater pleasure in seeing the universe work out according to certain natural laws that might inspire reverence in somebody else. And I think right. that falls back to personal disposition. But the important thing is that mm -hmm. everybody does find that sort of application yeah. and that sort of area in which they but do I'm, feel this like right, deep right, transcendental right. connection. But I'm saying, what does that admiration arise from? Like, first you have to, in like, order to compare people yourself... the way they are? No, I'm saying in order to think of something as very, very advanced or very beautiful, mm -hmm. you yourself have to be like aware you of your... Words, no, yeah. you, you, no you, you have to be aware of your own limits right so you have to be very consciously aware of your limitations and then when you see somebody transcend those limitations or maybe an area of 
nature that achieves a level of symmetry that you aren't yourself aware of, then you may be interested. I guess what I'm trying to say is that first there's like there's sort of a selfish component as far as you yourself are limited and affected and that's why you pursue the thing and then the next step is kind of a reverence which can be inspired by the media uh, and etc. So as far as that applies to transistor physics, that's two points. Is one that making people more aware of, of how they're affected on a practical level and the second one is using effective mediums to inspire reverence, etc. Yeah, yeah. But also, like, it's <laughs> much easier to inspire again. when you have Einstein versus, like, Shockley, which shocks really. Again, I think it's, like, the person that decides what they're going to admire and what they aren't. But you can frame it in a context that makes it easier, for sure. It's very yeah. true, but I mean, when I think of Einstein, for example, yeah, like, obviously a lot of great, you know, really, really great scientists, right? But... Mm-hmm. As you said earlier, like really, scientists that being a scientist and expert in something doesn't make you an expert in anything else, right? And so it's always it's always right. fascinated me, for example, that like Einstein was asked whether he wanted like to be president of Israel, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and that, well, that just seems, that just seems ridiculous to me. Like what? I don't I mean, see it's, why. It... You know, it's, it's, our culture is very good at glorifying. Exactly, yeah. And people think that if you're good at one thing, that you'll be good at another. That if you can solve one very difficult problem, that you're a universal problem solver. Yeah. But I think it's also a remnant of like that certain historical era when like science was finally starting to take off, and that like there was the development of relativism. There was the development of antibiotics. So people thought that science was like the ultimate answer to everything and to the point where they prioritize that above other things. Mm-hmm. They're like, scientists will be the answer and he yeah, will be yeah, the yeah, president yeah. of Israel. And he will be a <laughs> great one. Yeah, no, yeah not yeah, necessarily yeah. so. Yeah. Maybe it's partially a leftover of maybe over emphatic mechanistic culture mm-hmm. like yeah. now we've balanced out a little bit yeah. but but it is very exciting and then second and then secondly again people have so much reverence for the things they can't do like maybe for some for whatever reason which we can't really know there are fewer people who are gifted in science and mathematical fields than gifted in others at least to have to feel that they have some ability like with math and science it's either you're very good at it or you're not good at it and there's no medium while with everything else it's there's more of a gradient and people can place themselves on that gradient so when you have an excellent scientist that seems like somebody who's not in the same group or category as you and you think that they have some sort of ability that you yourself don't but, but really, uh, which just is, just isn't the case how much is that to do with education our education systems and how they work though i, I, I really don't know i don't know like is there evidence that be. people are just like naturally good at mathematics and science or rather or, or like rather than i think math. math and science is also one of those fields that's like much more quantifiable than the soft skills so to that point it's easier to like cut people off and say okay you're good but you're not right yeah, and that yeah, might yeah. contribute to the perception. Right, exactly, exactly, yeah. If you have one, one part more developed than the other, so they are more logical and they just solve problems better, mm-hmm. or they are more creative, so they do have a better imagination. She's definitely like a right hemisphere and I'm like but, a left hemisphere. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree so much. So somebody was just telling us about the left and right brain dichotomy. Well, I, I honestly, I'm someone who believes that like creativity is involved in the scientific endeavor in a big way. Absolutely, um, yeah. And so yeah. I'm not sure that like creativity versus logic dichotomy is something that I would subscribe to. 
really. So I don't subscribe to it either. I, th I think it's sort of a false, again, another false division created by popular culture, which is, is very consistently convenient, but perhaps is not, not convenient. No, no, it is convenient, but why? perhaps not Why? It's not convenient. Accurate. It's constantly perpetuated by because they have to divide people into fields so people can go and work for different companies, right? And as a result of our education system, we're funneled into one area or another, and there's much less overlap. I think and it so has people to identify do with themselves. But I didn't. I didn't experience it that way. As far as I felt that I was divided from science, I just felt I well, chose you, not you to be. Well, you opted out. Like if this was one of those internet quizzes that really exploits our in it propensity to want to classify ourselves and therefore mm -hmm. have a group and have some sort of social yeah. mode in which we can right. cast ourselves with right. because it is comfortable and it is convenient that you don't have to do any particularly revolutionary or dangerous tasks there is a path set out for you but if you challenge this path you might you will probably get to more interesting conclusions but that requires a great deal more bravery mm -hmm. and creativity absolutely yeah I feel well, like I have been in any opted case, out by you as well. But we shall see. And I think by removing these boundaries, it's much easier yeah. for you to find that certain aspect or many aspects across a yeah. variety of fields that you feel that sort of personal connection and reverence for. And right. that is the culmination of the human yeah. experience. Yeah. If we want to get super Yeah, we're very deep. Here. We're very deep. <laughs> or we, yeah, yeah, we yeah. try to um, find meaning. Points, all your points very well taken, Dan. The only thing that I maybe didn't under... I did understand, but I think that it would be good for you to explicate a bit on more. Why do you think it matters that within transistor physics specifically that there's this application of quantum physics? Like, what are the implications of that well, I for think you? It's just, um, well, so, so it's one of those fields where basis is quantum mechanics, but the application and the skill that you generally work at solve many problems, not all, is emergent from quantum mechanics, right? So there are mm -hmm. emergent, like, various rules and laws of semiconductor physics that bear no resemblance to uh, underlying properties of quantum mechanics but ultimately they were derived from them right and experimentally verified so it's 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 one of those it's an ex i think it's a good example of people say like chemistry is all based on physics right and it's not true it's not that chemistry is based on physics it's that chemistry is explicable in terms of physics but you wouldn't want to attempt to do it because you just, you just, it's mm -hmm. too much of a mountain to climb. <laughs> but i think like with, right uh, mm -hmm. solid state physics you're just one slight step closer to fundamental physics than chemistry, only a slight step, um, and yet it's still this whole separate discipline and it has its own rules, which are all explicable in terms of quantum mechanics, but which aren't quantum mechanics. So that's why I think it's important to, to acknowledge that it's all kind of explicable in terms of quantum mechanics. But, but equally, like even, for example, the theory of superconductivity, which is you know a major part of solid state physics, which is totally unrelated to transistors, right? In order to come up with our operational theory of how superconductivity works, Yes, you start from quantum mechanics, but a lot of kind of approximations and, oh, let's not worry about this and throw this on the floor is, is made to come up with something that is, is so simplified you can't imagine it works, but it does work. And so mm -hmm. but, like, that's, that's, to me, how more and more abstract fields, and by abstract, I mean abstracted from basic physics, fields of science like kind of come about. Absolutely, yeah. The only other point that I wanted to ask you on is why do you think that people are interested in big idea sciences and do you think it has anything to do with fascination with the unknown like there's a higher level of intrigue behind these areas because they seem farther from reality than our ordinary neoclassical physics i do think that 
yes, I think people will always be interested in cosmology. People will always be interested in quantum mechanics because those things are mysterious and they're kind of somehow foundational to like the world. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. But I see plenty of science communication about you know how the industrial revolution happened and how steam engines work and and how um nobel discovered nitroglycerin and all this kind of stuff that's all in important science you know but mm -hmm. that kind of stuff is on the level of transistor physics right that kind of stuff is right, on the level yeah. of like applied and and kind of somewhat abstracted from fundamental things so i think people are interested in it it's just that right. that specific thing i just don't, have never seen really done much about yeah uh, but yeah I, I don't know i mean i think big ideas there will always be some people who are just you know, taken by big ideas and... and uh... Yeah, like, I was... I only say that because I was definitely one of them. Like, I in the fourth grade, I watched, like, a History Channel documentary about the multi-worlds theory and parallel universes, and from there I learned quantum theory and uh, basic, you know, rel relativity. Just, just, just the most fundamental things because I, I found them so, so interesting because they seemed so totally absurd and impossible to me. Well, actually, I, I just make a point about that, that, like... One of the reasons that relativity and quantum mechanics are so important in other parts of modern physics, right, and that's all other parts of modern physics, is because they are concepts on the level of which you can describe so many other things in and everything kind of fits into place. Now, of course, the yeah, big yeah. problem is that they don't fit together with each other, but that's a, that's a totally other story. But <laughs> actually, yeah, you have to reconcile yeah, like I, I would say there are, there are <laughs> a number of concepts in classical physics, right? And classical physics in many ways is actually you know, as complicated as quantum physics because there's just so far you can go with the motion of things, complex fluids and stuff like that. But, like, for example, Noether's Theorem. I think it's an even tougher sell to try and make a documentary about Noether's Theorem than it is about semiconductor physics, right? But Noether's Theorem is a thing that was, I, I can't remember when it was discovered, 1913, something like that. But it's not until you have Noether's Theorem that you can really unite all of classical physics under, like, one unifying idea, right? So mm -hmm. Newton didn't have all this figured out. Maxwell didn't have all of this figured out. Really, it's like not until you have Noether's theorem that you can explain all of classical physics in terms of like one unifying idea. And so, right. like, but I think relativity and quantum mechanics are on that level where they, they unify a lot of other concepts in physics and, well, and science broadly, but, but more directly physics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Thank you for the insightful conversation. Yeah, Hopefully no, this it was, very was interesting. like was galvanizing rather than exhausting because we feel pretty inspired, don't we? We do, we do. Well, um, hopefully we like, do um, you end up with useful stuff from various people from for, for plenty of episodes. Yeah, yeah, we hope so as well. Yeah, we're learning. We've a been few speaking. Things, yeah, yeah, we've been speaking with all kinds of interesting people, and I mean, we're not. We've, we're only just starting, but it's been a lot of fun. We've learned a lot, so right. uh, we hope to continue. Definitely things and, out of our. And if we're ever in a position to put transistor physics in the mainstream, right. <laughs> if we ever take apart a transistor radio, we will be sure to update Absolutely. you on the progress. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, have thank a, you so much, yeah. and okay. have, have a great, great night. night. Bye. Bye. Take care. We'll send you. The episode. Yeah, thanks Bye. so much. Bye. Bye. The cat. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> he had a cat or a baby. I don't know. <laughs> cat.